we have a lot of aging landowners in, in our rural communities. And when they pass or when they retire or when they choose to sell their lands, often they'll be approached by contractors or mills who will basically offer to cut the land. We're trying to break that cycle and we're not trying to undermine landowners and their values. We're actually trying to capture the stewardship legacy of those landowners and ensure that it's reflected in the management or stewardship of that property in perpetuity. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Anuj. And you're listening to the Just Good Business Podcast. It's a show about amplifying the voices of social enterprises, the humans behind them, and the journey they are on. Join us as we learn from Nova Scotia's social enterprises. Hearing what inspired them to take the unusual path for doing social good, creating prosperity beyond profit. Let's explore Nova Scotia's world of social entrepreneurship together. Who knows? You may be closer to running your own social enterprise than you think. Forestry has been a way of life for many Nova Scotians, but especially in recent years, clear cutting has become a subject of public debate. As we experience frequent extreme weather events in our province, it makes it even more critical how we manage forests and forestry in our province moving forward. Medway Community Forest Cooperative is a rather unique, path-breaking forestry experiment in our province, taking on the role of stewardship for creating an ecologically diverse and sustainable forest ecosystem while developing a business model. Since 2015, it has been testing a hypothesis that economic, social, and environmental outcomes need not be in conflict. Is it really possible to harvest wood for income and at the same time create an ecologically diverse forest, identify and protect special zones for migratory birds or rock climbing to promote ecotourism and possibly even use some of the land for housing given the housing crisis and do that all sustainably? In this episode, we'll be learning with you as we chat with Mary Jane and Mari Lamak about Medway. Medway was set up by the provincial government as a pilot after the closure of a pulp mill in Liverpool in Annapolis County, where over 65% of the land was not viable for economic harvesting or even ecologically sustainable. We can't wait to dive in and learn how a massive community campaign followed by the formation of a community cooperative for taking over the stewardship of this depleted forest land has now created a multi-value, ecologically diverse forest. Since the recording of this episode, there is an update to provide, but I'm actually going to be really selfish and save that until the end of the episode. So stay tuned for that. Let's dive in. So uh, for listeners who are expecting an Avengers origin story uh, question here at the very beginning, because that's how I've started every episode thus far, I instead will flex a different nerd muscle today and quote Treebeard from Lord of the Rings in saying, many of these trees were my friends, creatures I have known from nut or acorn. So Mari, MJ, what is the Medway acorn story, if you will? <laughs> that's great. Um, so... We're here from the Medway Community Forest and the Nova Scotia Working Woodlands Trust. Uh, the MCFC, as we'll call it, to, to make things a little bit easier, 
Uh, it formed in 2014 um, following the dissolution of the Bowater Mersey paper mill in Liverpool, Nova Scotia. Following the closure of that mill, there was a pretty drastic upheaval in the forest industry of southwestern Nova Scotia. And also there was a mass amount of land, uh, of private land that was made available. And following an extensive public campaign um, for the province to, quote unquote, buy back the Mersey uh, or buy back these Bowwater lands, um, the, the Department of Natural Resources at the time um, purchased back a considerable amount of Bowwater private lands and kind of at that point set out an intention to establish a community forest somewhere on those lands um, to have some level of community and multi-value management reflected uh, within the forestry of Southwest Nova Scotia. Um, so our group submitted RFP or a proposal to an RFP process um, for the Bedway Community Forest Cooperative that was really seen as an opportunity to meld a variety of economic, social, environmental interests into one entity that would provide forest management that reflected the values that are within the local community. So our local community is primarily um, Caledonia. So right in the middle of the, the Southwest, uh, right adjacent to Ketchumacujic National Park. We were provided with 15,000 hectares of land through that process um, and kind of have just been growing our impact ever since. Love that. I'm also recognizing that this is the first time, listeners, that we have both MJ and Mari as double guests on the podcast here. So if it's possible, MJ, why don't you say hello and then Mari say hello so that our listeners can follow along and realize who they're listening to as they go. So MJ, why don't you say hello so we can hear your voice? Hello. And Mari, what about you? Hello. There we go. Perfect. Uh, MJ, You've spent uh, many years at Medway, and after dabbling briefly with the feds, from what I understand, uh, you're now back at Medway, whereas Mari, um, you've recently uh, uh, joined Medway. Um, tell us about your passions and personal journeys and, and what's led you to Medway itself as an entity. Uh, maybe we'll go Mari first and then MJ. Yeah, so I am actually working with the Nova Scotia Working Woodlands Trust, um, which is an affiliate program project with the MCFC. I started just at the end of September, so I'm pretty fresh, um, and I'm actually fresh to forestry as well. I come from an agricultural background, uh, like I'm a small landowner and farmer, uh, and run my own small organic farm, and then also come to forestry with a like agricultural biodiversity background, working on specific projects to conserve uh, species at risk on private lands. Um, so that's kind of what I focused my my master's work on uh, in 2017. Love it. Thank you for that, Mari. MJ, what about you? Um, so I've been with the Medway since 2015. Uh, and at that point was like a probably overly keen young forest professional thinking I could, you know, really make a change in the world and maybe took on a bit more than I could chew. But I've since kind of grown into the role. Um, and I've, I've been with the organization, like, albeit a, a small stint with the federal government recently, um, over eight years now. Um, so it's, it's really been a, a fundamental part of my career. And uh, I feel like I've grown a lot with 
with the organization itself. Love it. Well, I feel like I left the puns at the door when I quoted Treebeard at the beginning. So I won't jump on the fact that you've grown a lot um, in the last <laughs> eight years as an organization. I will leave all those dad jokes aside. <laughs> Um, I promise for the rest of the episode. Anuj, over to you, my friend. <laughs> yeah. It's so lovely to have you both. Um, Medway uh, seemed to have been a path breaker in, the field, uh, in this field uh, in Nova Scotia, uh, creating a business model of regenerative forestry and at the same time creating revenue stream for long-term economic viability. On top of it, Medway is a cooperator. Uh, give us some numbers. Um, give us a sense of your investments, uh, the revenue that you are generating, and how, how do you manage the business side of things? Great question. Uh, we're still figuring it out, <laughs> probably to start. So when we started, we received a substantial grant from the provincial government as as kind of our startup funding to hire staff, get operations on the ground, have kind of a float. Um, and since then, we have been able to generate uh, a good portion of our revenue from primarily our timber sales. So as you know, what is formally known as a Crown Land licensee, we do a fair bit of forestry operations and exclusively ecological forestry on this 15,000 hectare chunk of property that we have uh, in Annapolis County. So in doing so, we... We are supporting kind of the traditional forestry industry. So we sell to local mills uh, and then our products, you know, will then be sold to the public. Um, but we have kind of always tried to have more of like a local impact with the forest products we sell. Um, so we've always had a firewood business as like a core component of our revenue um, so selling firewood to the public, to members of the community, to members of our cooperative, as well as supplying firewood um, to a producer who then goes and sells it to Ketchumacoochee National Park um, so that the firewood that campers are buying at the park is directed directly from the local community. In terms of like how we're operating as a co-op, like we are a for-profit co-op, but no, no matter how many shares one person has, they only have kind of one vote within the co-op. So we we do try and maintain more of like a, a egalitarian style voting and that type of thing so that it's not biased in any way and that all kind of all individuals are respected as more of an individual basis. Um uh, we're kind of yet to reach the stage that we have like this community investment model, which is really where we're hoping to be in the future, where we generate enough revenue, we have diversified income streams that we could actually end up reinvesting back into the community. Um, so we have done like small projects here and there, like community tree plants, that type of thing. We're not quite there yet in terms of generating sufficient revenue to actually make a really significant investment, but we can operate within the realm of, you know, doing our business locally and making sure that, you know, we're providing employment to the community and things like that, that, you know, will continue to support our mandate in the absence of, you know, a, a gross amount of profit. We always say um, at Just Good Business that uh, social enterprise is a journey, not a destination. <laughs> so in that journey of uh, creating self-sufficiency in, in your revenue stream, 
uh, where are you? Give us some numbers around it. And I can we suspect that uh, Mari joining you uh, may introduce some agriculture aspect to the, how your land is managed. Uh, give us a sense of where, where is it going? So right now for our like numbers, we're probably running about like 40% of our revenue is from timber sales. Uh, and then the remainder are coming from a diversity of different grants. Um, so we do have like a standard operating grant from, from the Department of Natural Resources and Renewables. And we also recently took on a substantial project um, to combat the infestation of hemlock woolly adelgid. So this has kind of been identified as a priority within the community to treat and preserve our hemlock trees and our old forests um, using actually pesticides, uh, which kind of seems counterintuitive for, for most in the environmental community, but we're fighting a little bit of a war out there and get against this invasive insect. And uh, it's really been like a keystone of our initiative in the past year that, I mean, it's, it's, it's allowed us to grow quite substantially in terms of hiring new staff and getting people working on the ground, but also kind of given us a different uh, route to invest our efforts into kind of while we're, we're waiting to get to that self-sufficiency stage. And I'll maybe pass it over to Mari to talk a bit more about like the concept of the land trust and how the kind of financial picture will look there. Cause it, it will also operate very similar to a social enterprise. Yeah. So the land trust is like the community forest uh, currently funded through grants, but what we're hoping is that once we have people signed up onto the program and have delivered easements onto private lands to conserve their forests in perpetuity, we hope that the long-term stewardship and monitoring of the lands can be funded through the carbon market. So we are hoping to act as kind of an aggregator to acquire the minimum acres that you need to actually access that market. So um, it's a 10,000 acre minimum and the trust will kind of be that holder of the pool. The sales of the carbon credits will fund the long-term kind of financial sustainability of the trust as well. We're hoping that there'll be a small kickback for landowners as well. So they will have a little bit of, of a financial incentive to participate in the trust, but it's not going to be like the driving incentive. We're not dangling that as a carrot. We're, we're more um, wanting to, to use that like stewardship and pr land protection as the carrot for our um, participants. It's fascinating and, and very complex business model looks like you're developing. In terms of your annual uh, you know, budget, uh, give us some numbers. And within, as you mentioned that, if you don't mind, you know, give us a sense of also, can we say that the overall valuation of the forest under your custodianship has increased over the last eight years? And how do you factor that into your business modeling? Do you put that on your balance sheet, for example? Is that even allowed? Uh, because uh, we can presume that the overall, not just economic, but environmental value of that forest has increased over time. So give us a sense of on, on that. Yeah, that's a great question. It's obviously an asset, but because, well, for the MCFC, it's crown land. We still don't 
own those trees. So we can't actually report it as an asset. So that was one thing we struggled with early on in the organization is like we had no assets, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Uh, Which is pretty unique when you're dealing with, you know, paying contractors large amounts of money to go in and do your harvests or execute road building or that kind of thing when you actually have not a lot to leverage. Um, And then also it provides you know, in comparison to a traditional lumber mill, like they can capture, you know, any sort of profit loss throughout the supply chain. But because we just sell logs, it really, you know, kind of tightens the restrictions on how we can or can't make money. So we're trying to look into investigate ways that we can add value to the products coming off the license area over time. There is one good thing about like working in trees and that trees grow. (laughs) And this ties into the carbon project as well. Is like we're looking at a longer term investment over time. And, you know, although the lands we acquired from Bowwater, relatively speaking, were fairly young and, you know, not, you know, over, I think like 65% of the license area wasn't actually of age that it could be economically harvested that we are seeing kind of after eight years, a lot of the forest stands that it wouldn't necessarily be appropriate to, you know, do selection type management and sort of partial harvesting in kind of in year one, you know, now we're eight years older. So we're able to look at new opportunities, new areas coming available over time. And then that also works with the carbon project, like the big kind of carbon offset developers that we're working with in establishing that program, they're doing model projections over time that shows how much carbon will grow in the forests that are participating in the program. And uh, if you were to give us an estimation of when you might be uh, able to uh, generate enough revenue to run the operations, uh, peek into the future, do you have a year in mind? For the MCFC, we're hoping that will be self-sufficient in the next kind of three years. Um, so wow. we've got, yeah, so we, we're currently negotiating a longer-term agreement with the department. So we've been operating on a pilot program kind of since we started and just like small extensions on that pilot program kind of ever since. But we, we are negotiating a 10-year agreement that's on a renewable cycle moving forward. So that will allow us to be a lot more nimble in terms of accessing financing, that type of thing, as well as um, probably negotiating some sort of economic framework within that agreement that will help us provide more investment to the community. Good luck to you. More power to you. <laughs> it's been a long <laughs> process, but I think I think we're going to get there soon. And then like we're still kind of figuring out a lot of the stuff in terms of how it's looking for the land trust. Um, but like once we get that 10,000 acre pool that Murray spoke of, um, like that will basically generate sufficient revenue to pay for staffing costs associated with the stewardship and monitoring of that 10,000 acres. So it's a really interesting business model in that most land trusts can't access the carbon market because they can't show that the preservation of those forests would be additional 
you know, so basically this is all about what carbon offsets related to forestry, you know, it's really about showing how any sort of measure or restriction that you're putting on that area stores additional carbon than what would be the status quo. So you can't actually start with a property that already has an easement on it. You would need to start with a property that's at risk for liquidation or at risk of being clear cut. And then you put an easement on it kind of at the same time as you're entering into a carbon agreement so that you're showing that this easement, this carbon agreement is creating massive additional value in terms of carbon offsetting over time and that you're completely eliminating the risk for liquidation or clear cutting. We probably will have to come uh, and spend a day or two with you and have a masterclass, all of us from just, <laughs> just good business. Uh, amazing. Thank you. Uh, over to you, Matt. A day of forest bathing. And I slowed down my pronunciation because the last time I talked about it when I was in northern New Brunswick, somebody thought I said forced bathing. And it's not the same thing. Um, I really appreciate. So one of the things that we say often here is looking at prosperity beyond profit. And what you've identified, and I, I would qualify it as saying, you know, value beyond assets, because you're creating so much value and impact in the work that you're doing in cultivating, um, in regeneration, in carbon capture, um, in protecting this all important resource that we have um, collectively. And you may not be able to call it an asset on the balance sheet and whatnot, but there's so much value to that. So I bring that up because, you know, it, it could very well have been, you know, one of the earlier challenges you faced, which is trying to figure out how to operate without any kind of tangible assets in hand or in your in your um, uh, controller on your balance sheet. So, um, you know, whether it's that or whether it's something else that stands out, I'd love to hear from you as to what were some of the greatest challenges that you feel you've had to overcome thus far um, since inception? A lot of the challenges that we had early on were related to how forestry has been done in Nova Scotia for decades and how it's been primarily, like we've been primarily valuing our forests solely on economic potential and not capturing that that like wide diversity of values that include like social and environmental values. So early on when we were proposing, you know, doing things a little bit differently, taking out less trees at one time, we received a lot of pushback from the provincial government at the time regarding losing economic potential of those forests because we weren't taking out as much as what would traditionally be done through, you know, kind of the status quo, which at that point was clear cutting, you know, whereas we were trying to convince them like, oh, but in doing this, we're producing higher value forests for the future. We're acknowledging that these forests are degraded for the most part, like Nova Scotia forests have been through, like uh, pretty much all of them have been through like two to three cutting cycles. Typically our soil nutrients are pretty poor, you know, Mari knows from farming that like that means, you know, they're not going to produce as, you know, high value trees as they might, you know, otherwise. Um, so we went through the, the the province went through this whole forest practices review or commonly known as the Leahy review in 2017, 2018. And that's where we really saw this like shift to this ecological forestry paradigm and acknowledging that like biodiversity comes first in forestry operations. And this is kind of how we've been operating 
<laughs> our, you know, the our entirety. Um, but it really has given us the ability to be a bit more flexible. And then now we have provincial support to do what we do, whereas we didn't in the past. Um, and I think a lot of with the land trust, like, I don't know, Mar, if you want to touch on some of the challenges that we've been having lately <laughs> regarding political process. And yeah. Yeah. Did you say challenges regarding political process? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. No one knows about that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so with the land trust, um, we are going to be delivering easements under the Community Easements Act, which is an act that was written in 2012. Um, And this is different than like conservation easements, which are delivered under a different act. And that would be what is used by um, kind of more traditional conservation organizations like the Nova Scotia Nature Trust or something like that. So the Community Easements Act was written in 2012 and it was written with four organizations on it who had what is called eligible body status. So these organizations are able to write and like officially deliver these community easements and we are not one of them. (laughs) So what we're trying to do is get written onto that act. And in order to do that, we need to amend the act and go through like the whole legislature. And unfortunately for the trust, it has been a very long haul to get that done. And it is still not done. We've been kind of pulling every string that we can um, by asking our supporters to write their representatives, by asking the representatives directly ourselves, by working with our board, who are like incredible and connected people in in the forestry world in the province. And yet we are still unable to get on that dang agenda <laughs> to get approved. Um, yeah, so that is our current, current challenge. And this is like just a massive barrier for us. We can't really do the work without it um, to actually put easements kind of in, in practice, be like actually protect these forested lands. We can't do it without the eligible body status. So that is our biggest hurdle right now. Dumb question and then smart question, I promise. I don't actually know what easement means. So can you describe to me what the, what an easement is that it is you're looking for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so an easement is just basically, it's a legal agreement between an easement holder and a landowner uh, that basically will put certain um, provisions on that land that are typically held in perpetuity. Within our context of the Nova Scotia Working Woodlands Trust, um, we will be entering into working forest community easements. Um, So those will actually be easements that will allow that landowner to continue to use their property for the purposes of forestry, including that within the act. So rather than, you know, having an easement that's solely conservation, so solely land protection, which is often what a traditional land trust would issue, we're actually still allowing landowners to benefit from their forests as long as they're doing so in an ecologically appropriate manner. Mm. Um, so, So this is like really what we're trying to do with the land trust is we're trying to break this cycle of liquidation and clear cutting that often happens when private lands change hands in Nova Scotia. 
So what we typically see is, you know, we have a lot of aging landowners in, in our rural communities. And when they pass or when they retire or when they choose to sell their lands, often they'll be approached by contractors or mills who will basically offer to cut the land. You know, sometimes they do it appropriately, sometimes not. Oftentimes it's like can be like a boundary line to boundary line situation where the entirety of that land is cleared, that biodiversity is lost. The forest will likely never regenerate to be the you know healthy, vigorous forest it was before. So we're trying to break that cycle and we're not necessarily trying to, we're definitely not trying to undermine landowners and their values. We're actually trying to capture the stewardship legacy of those landowners and ensure that it's reflected in the management or stewardship of that property in perpetuity. So mm. we work with the landowners develop develop these agreed practices of things that are permitted, restricted, and um, allowed with permission on the property. So that actual easement itself will go with the deed of the property and kind of be passed along. And, and perpetuity is the idea um, so that you can ensure that that forest will remain a forest forever. Mm, there's there's so much in that. So thank you so much for that uh, for that definition. So I really I really appreciate that. And I think that you've touched on so many things within there about um, the challenge being removing the short sighted economic um, gain to be able to look at really long term sustainability. Um, you know, you think of stewardship. You think of you know seven generations. You think of mm -hmm. of of you know, all my relations, it really is about a reciprocal relationship. And and uh, I really commend you folks on, on working through that systems change again in that, in that big, big, big world of, you know, I'm, I'm equating, you know, province house to Isengard at this point, because I'm just continuing down that analogy. But um, last, <laughs> last question for you is, is there an opportunity that you would like to um, use this platform potentially to be able to, is there a call to action? Is there, um, if, is there anywhere that people can go to, to look up, um, how they can support or sign or reach out to their representatives to ensure that, um, to best ensure that that agenda item actually makes it to, um, the next discussion. Yeah. So if you head on over to our website, which is Nova Scotia Working Woodlands Trust, NS Working Woodlands Trust.org. Yeah. Maybe you want to put in the show notes or something. Like we'll put that. we'll put it in the show notes. Absolutely. Yeah. NS, okay. Yeah. We'll put in the show notes. <laughs> so if you want to go to our website, which is in the show notes, on our blog, we have a like a recent update for like what's been happening at the trust for the past little while. And in that, there's a link to a sample letter for uh, anybody, any supporter to write their MLA um, on behalf of the trust in support of this quest for eligible body status. Uh, it would be super helpful if anyone wanted to, to send, to fill that in. Um, obviously a personalized letter is more effective than our template, but you're welcome to send in the template anyway. Um, yeah, it would be really, really helpful and we would really appreciate it. I would pick up the thread from here and uh, just uh, realize and recognize that you are not only operating Medway Community Forest Cooperative, 
you are really actively seeking to influence the whole ecosystem of forestry in some way or other. Tell us a little bit about uh, your allies and collaborators and peers and how you intersect with them, um, especially given the fact that uh, we have a unique province in somewhat, uh, you know, in terms of ownership structures where uh, we believe 70% of the land is actually in the private hands. And, and so how does that ecosystem influence your work and, and how do you in, are trying to influence that ecosystem? Yeah, great, great question. And we do work in a really small community in the conservation and forestry world. And I think more so in the forest conservation world, the private woodland stewardship world, you know, it's a, it's a great group of individuals that often come together on a variety of projects and and really do support each other in in our different endeavors and i think there's been a lot of unity that's been established with this switch to ecological forestry and um, that has kind of like made the public a lot more aware of the direction that we should be going you know a lot of people knew that like yeah clear cutting was wrong but didn't necessarily have the education or background to suggest an alternative um, so those are the individuals that we really kind of meld with in, in kind of our everyday world. Um, but we work quite a bit, you know, on the forest operation side of things in particular with conservation groups and supporting innovative new practices um, or best management practices for, for species at risk in particular. Um, so we've done things like um, established a singing season for migratory birds. Uh, so from the months of May to August, we cease all operations within the license area in order to support uh, the breeding and nesting seasons for migratory Amazing. birds. Amazing. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And that's like really, it's, <laughs> I don't even know if it's been done like anywhere in Canada. Uh, we just kind of like, started it as kind of a novel approach and it's really caught on and and we've even started integrating you know special habitat features within our forest operations that will support also support habitats for migratory birds um so th that's been one key thing that i think we've been really it's been immense value to demonstrate those practices to woodlot owners as well so we really you know because we have such a large area we have the flexibility to try different things and then, you know, bring people out and showcase our operations. And I mean, don't not just showcasing like everything that went well, but showcasing some of the lessons we've learned um, in the meantime and, you know, really fostering like a bit of a demonstration forest in that sense. There's a long way to go. Uh, and yet uh, we believe you have come a long way already. Do you have any policy recommendations that you are ready with, uh, if you were to give recommendations to the legislators uh, sitting in Halifax right now? That's a loaded question. <laughs> um, I mean, we're, the, the eligible body thing has really been a major barrier for us. And I think in like learning from this experience, like it's great to create a new act, like the Community Easements Act, uh, and be able to foster, you know, different types of land preservation. Like, you know, there, there's a heritage trust in that, that's an eligible body in the act. There's like a 
rock climbing association. Like it's really able and, and community land trust can also be used for housing. Like it's a really interesting tool that, you know, if you create this barrier and that new organizations can't be added to that act unless they receive cabinet approval to do so, and the act needs to be amended, the act becomes futile. You know, if you're only creating it so the first four organizations that got on the act when it was established are able to hold those easements, then, you know, what what's the point? So we'd hope that in us going through this process, the province will learn that in order to you know be a bit more flexible and innovative, that perhaps they need to revisit that approval process and and allow more organizations to look at becoming an eligible body because I think there is a lot of really beneficial projects that could originate from like a, a community easements as a model um, that would address a lot of the problems that we're dealing with. And if you were to replicate what you are doing uh, at a much faster pace, create the impact because you know climate change is not waiting for us, uh, and forestry management uh, you know needs to be done now and not in the future. How do you see that replication and spreading ha- happening in our province? Yeah, that's a great question um, and something that definitely comes up often when we're working with private landowners. Uh, and there's a lot of resources out there related to what we call like climate adaptivity and resiliency in forests, in particular, looking at uh, what species will thrive or prosper in our changing climate. Uh, in particular, our, an, an organization out of New Brunswick Community Forest International has put together an immense amount of resources on climate adaptivity and answering those specific questions. Um, so we're we're really trying to promote species that will be resilient. Um, so like you know, it it varies depending on where you are in the province. For us in the southwest, you know, we're probably looking at a landscape where spruce and fir are going to decline and pine and oak are going to thrive. So we're thinking about that when we're developing our forest stewardship and management um, plans. So we're actually doing harvesting or harvest practices um, that will foster the regeneration of those species. Um, And the same goes with kind of the private woodlot side of things. You know, if a landowner has an old field that's exclusively white spruce, like we can kind of give them some of the tools and recommendations to help diversify that forest and and doing that. So an approach that's not only addressing the climate crisis, but also addressing the biodiversity crisis as well. So creating more structure and diversity for for species at risk and and wildlife habitat. This is all sounding so much music to the ear. I think there is still hope left. Thank you. Songbird music to the ear when there's no cutting <laughs> happening is, what's ha- is, is, is what I'm hearing. So you're talking about basically reforestation in a way that is allowing for, you know, forests to grow in a way that is dealing with this adapting climate and dealing with this changing climate that we're working on. But what about the right now when it comes to, you know, decisions that you're that you're making on a day to day basis. I'm thinking about this past summer, obviously, was probably a nightmare for you folks uh, seeing the amount of fires that were happening from wildfire perspective. So uh, how is that affecting and impacting your right now 
when it comes to the urgent um, and like sometimes massively devastating uh, fire situations and flooding situations that we're having right now in this moment. Talk to us about your nightmares and if there's anything and how, how it affects your decision making. It's hard with fire in in Nova Scotia because it's not really how our forests naturally regenerate. Like we're more concerned about wind here than anything else and the intensity of wind events um, that will cause like what we commonly refer to as blowdown, <laughs> trees that have fallen over. We actually did have a fire within the license area back in 2016. And so anyone who's like gone from Ketchy to Annapolis Royal can see it right along the highway. Um, And that was human caused. So a lot of like the issues with fire is like the climate crisis is going to cause more drought conditions and more flooding. So it's going to cause more extremes in precipitation. So when we have those drought conditions, that's where like people need to be really careful (laughs) about what they're doing in the woods and being responsible for their actions and making sure that they're not inadvertently causing fires. Like we're not in the boreal forest. We're not worried about like dry lightning strikes here. But in terms of like forest management, like there are things you can do that like if a fire is inevitable, you know, if you're in those kind of drought conditions that you can create resiliency. So a lot of that has to do with like thinning the canopy, reducing fuel load, um, ensuring that a fire can't spread as easily if it were to ignite. Unlike the wind side of things, that's like a pretty interesting question um, when we're looking at like our actual forest operations and how much of the canopy we're removing when we're doing this like ecological style harvesting. Um, So we don't want to be removing too much of the canopy so that the trees that are left standing will blow over. We want to be leaving like this kind of sweet spot between, you know, depending on what type of forest it is between like 80 to 60% of the trees that are, will remain, you know, and then that will depend on the species. Like pine is more solid than spruces, like spruce will blow down more easily. So maybe we want to retain more spruce post-harvest. This is like, you know, really getting into the like nitty gritty of making decisions on what we call like a a civil culture. Um, But those are the kind of things that we are looking at day to day so that, you know, we're reducing, you know, both our potential economic loss as well as potential habitat loss from these kind of catastrophic events. I mean, you mentioned at at the beginning there the the need for kind of human vigilance, for lack of a better term, and and um, I'm saying that because um, you know sometimes the concept of you know things that are common knowledge may not actually be that common as we hear mm-hmm. often. So, in addition to as my children children would say, checking the burn band. I still yeah. haven't heard the burn band on Spotify, but in addition to checking the burn band um, as uh, patrons of this province. Um, is there anything else that you would advise, you know, listeners or like how we can best be vigilant and treat um, our forests, be they the Medway forests or the forests in our backyard um, with respect, mm-hmm. particularly per- uh, pertaining to the drought and um, wet conditions that we're inevitably going to become part of our lives moving forward? Yeah, like I think there's always that like 
idea of promoting diversity. So if you're promoting diverse forests, you will be inherently promoting resilient forests. So if you have like a wide variety of species, for example, you know, like what we're going through with the hemlock woolly adelgid, this invasive pest that's predating all the hemlock trees, basically in Southwest Nova Scotia, you know, if we had forests that were all hemlocks, then we'd be screwed, right? Like we would have no forest left. So it's about like including different species, you know, surrounding your property or your home so that, you know, if any one thing were to happen, that you have that inherent resiliency. Um, you know, there are definitely like practices, like what we call like fire safe management practices that will help like protect your home against fire. So if you're looking at like the Hammond's Plains example, you know, those homes were in this, like what's called this wildland urban interface where you kind of have houses punched into these softwood forests and inherently softwood or conifers are more susceptible to fire than hardwoods or deciduous trees are. So like, that's another example of like planting more hardwood trees rather than softwood trees surrounding your home. And then there's that like responsibility aspect of do you burn your leaves in the spring or fall? Like maybe don't do that. Like there's a whole lot of more like ecological and biodiverse benefits to leaving things be and leaving nature be, you know, there's definitely like surrounding your home. If you're in that kind of like wildland urban interface, you want to be doing certain management practices that reduce fuel load. But in general, like if you're doing some sort of like risky activity, like, having a fire or burning brush, like that's where you've got to kind of think of like, where could this go? What is the worst case scenario? Because things can get out of control pretty fast, especially in those drip conditions. Mm, it feels so, so, so very real. So yeah, I very much appreciate that. Um, last question on advice for you. So you've given advice on how we can be stewards to uh, better stewards to the land. What about advice for folks that are looking to shift towards a social enterprising or co-op model of their own? Um, what have you learned over the course of the last little while that you would advise, say, oh, I wish that younger me would know this, um, <laughs> to ensure that they can potentially uh, avoid some obstacles that y'all have overcome? Yeah, that's a great, <laughs> that's a really good question. I think like we we had like a lot of pushback at first. Um and we really just like stuck to our guns and what we believed in, uh, in terms of primarily like this ecological forestry concept. Um, and now, you know, we're seeing it implemented across pretty much all crown lands, like across the province are now like operating on a model that we kind of, you know, we didn't invent it, but, but we've been doing it for, you know, since before it was cool, as I like to say. Um, so I, I think that like that perseverance, like there was definitely points with the board, you know, that it felt like, you know, we were just making no progress, especially with this long-term agreement. Like when I say I left for federal government, like there were reasons why I left. There were a lot of significant challenges, um, that we just like weren't making any headway with turning this project into something that would be longer lasting, you know, more than just like this ephemeral pilot concept, you know, getting the government to take us seriously and getting us to move past 
um, you know, just, just a concept that was kind of like an ad hoc announcement and, you know, a good news story and actually turning it into like a viable business. So not that we're like really there yet, but it's definitely been like a huge part of the process is that, that general perseverance. I don't know if you have anything to add. Not necessarily just that there's like no specific blueprint. No. You know, like it's, I think everybody has their own path. I mean, from my small time at the trust, um, I've benefited a lot from reaching out and asking, asking around. And I think that's like one of the best things to do to get your, your feet, right. Is just reach out to anyone who is doing similar work. What a path breaking story. Uh, just amazing. You know, we started small, uh, slowly, but then you really took us to weeds. Uh, this <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we reckon that uh, this is the first of several conversations we'll continue to have with you and profile your work, your challenges, uh, insights that you are gaining uh, and, and seeing how the whole ecosystem around forestry management uh, can shift over time. Uh, thank you so much. So much wisdom here. We heard about integration of agricultural biodiversity into the plans, establishing a community investment vehicle or CDF for expanding investments, creating proof of concept that regenerative forestry and economic and social imperatives can be achieved in harmony. As we got into the weeds and quite almost literally, we learned about how climate resiliency and adaptivity needs to be based in knowledge and science about species that are likely to survive in changing weather patterns. Oh, and that update? Yeah, well, Medway has actually managed to get their name approved and included in the Community Easement Act. Wahoo! Medway seemed to have truly come very far and now has even more ambitious plans, like creating economic value of the forest through carbon markets, increasing the forest cover with hardwood trees and creating higher economic value, reducing the clear cutting, influencing and reshaping the Community Easement Act that allows mixed use sustainable forestry and getting away from this unhelpful binary debate if the forests are meant for commercial or conservation purpose, where, and I quote, the forest will remain a forest forever. Simple, clear, visionary. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe, tune in for more. I'm Matt. And I'm Anuj. And this has been Just Good Business Podcast.